Huh? Okay. This is the Convergent Science Network podcast. Leading researchers in the domain of neuroscience, brain theory, and technology are interviewed by Paul Verschur and Tony Prescott. It's Paul Verschur with the Convergent Science Network podcast, together with my colleague Tony Prescott. And with Murray Shanahan, who was speaking this morning in our summer school here in Barcelona, and and Murray, you you presented, let's say, a bit more an abstract view on on cortical dynamics and how we could mm. think about cortical dynamics. So so, what are the key features of this model of cortex you're presenting, and what are you trying to explain? Mm. So the, I think the key feature of uh, of the model, uh, which reflects my current interests, really, uh, is the richness of the dynamics that it produces. So um, metastability is the, was one of the main themes that I talked about this morning. So that's one important feature, uh, which is related to um, to the size of the of the repertoire of different states that the system can produce as well. So metastability, just to to spell that out. So uh, so a system is is metastable. Uh, basically, if it instead of um, instead of falling into a stable attractor, it rather it sort of lingers in the vicinity of an attractor-like state um, without, you know, stabilizing and falling straight right into that attractor um, and then maybe, uh, but then maybe moves on to a different attractor. Yeah. So, um, so for, uh, for listeners who, who, for whom that isn't very familiar uh, terminology, so, uh, so, the idea would be, uh, or one kind of attractor state would be where, um, where all the parts of the brain were all oscillating in synchrony all at the same time, and of course this never happens, and it would be it would be very very bad if it did. But that would be that's one kind of attractor state that you get you can get in dynamical systems is where you've got a whole load of oscillators that are all completely synchronized with each other. Now in the brain, I think we're the kind of dynamics we see is where there's lots of oscillations going on. There's lots of sync patterns of synchrony. But what we're really interested in is we're interested in states of partial synchrony, where some parts of the brain are synchronized with other parts of the brain. That often represents that they're talking to each other. Um, and we're also interested in uh, metastable s- states of, of synchronization. So where it doesn't stay in that exact combination of synchronized parts but but that sort of coalition of synchronized parts is like that for a while and then the coalition breaks apart and it finds another state but now you could argue that this metastable state which is defined in a state space is in some sense arbitrary because as observer I can decide at what level I define my state space and what's metastable at one level of description can just be a fixed point attractor at another level of description. So is that do you see that as a problem? This arbitrariness of how we define such a state space? Um, well, uh, it's uh, it, it certainly doesn't have to be so arbitrary and you can there are various ways that you can can try to quantify it precisely. So uh, so one way, for example, uh, is to is to look at um, uh, in the case of these coupled oscillators, if you have a whole collection of oscillators that are, say, that are that are decoupled, um, then um, then there's no connection between them at all, really. And in that case, that's that's the sort of um, uh, the trivial case where where there's not going to be any a, any um, 
you know, synchronization except coincidental synchronization. So that's the statistical baseline. So if you know, if you're looking at your system and things fall into synchrony, you know, a lot more, a lot more than you would expect them to uh, in, in the case of that kind of, um, that kind of baseline statistics, then you know that that's, that's serious synchronization, mm. uh, serious sort of uh, but, uh, but are you Are you saying with this metastability concept that, uh, let's say, between stability and complete chaos, it's in this intermediate zone that interesting things are happening? Yes, that's certainly, so, certainly so very like much. like an edge of chaos kind of it, It's argument. very much related to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very much related to that. So it, it is a, there is a kind of criticality phenomenon mm -hmm. there where the, the, the sort of systems that you're interested in or, or, the, or the dynamics that you're interested in is poised between order and disorder. So, so, mm -hmm. so you know, a highly ordered um, system will be one that was just, say, completely synchronized, and a highly disordered system will be one like the one I just described, completely decoupled. There's no relationship between the different oscillators. What you're interested in is this, this uh, state which is between the two where there's a certain amount of order and a certain amount of disorder. So mm -hmm. the parts are sort of interacting with each other, but they're not totally, you know, there isn't one dominant state that persists. Mm -hmm. So now you were defining metastability also in relation to the physiology of people like Pascal Fries, who comes from the school of Wolf Singer, mm. who, who sort of ascribe a lot of importance to, let's say, synchronization phenomena in the brain. Yeah. Right? So how, how are these two things now related? Yeah, so that's very much the backdrop for, for, for the discussion we've just had, really, is, is uh, um, so Pascal, according to Pascal Fries's co uh, communication through coherence hypothesis, um, which makes a lot of sense uh, to me, um, you can think of two populations of neurons that are that are oscillating in synchrony as basically in a position to communicate with with each other and cooperate with each other to influence each other and exchange information and so on. Um, because when the troughs and peaks of their activity coincide, then then they're in a position good position to in mm -hmm. exchange spikes, mm -hmm. so long as all the delays work out and so mm -hmm. on. Um, so so. Uh, that's the kind of that's the reason why synchronization is of one it's a hypothesis but it's one reason why synchronized collections of neurons are might be of interest if you're looking at populations on different parts of the brain isn't a bit counterintuitive because in some sense if I now would look at these two neurons and I would plot their activity over time mm. but against each other mm. they might actually be in some sort of fixed point they might be in a very limit a limit cycle but it would not look like a very variable, metastable state. So how is then the coherence in gamma reflecting this metastability or this criticality phenomena? Yeah. Well, first of all, you've got to look at different time scales. Um, so, um, uh, and, and, and you're also looking at whole populations of neurons. So you're certainly not looking at just single neurons, but you're looking at populations of neurons. So, so you might look at one population of neurons. You might see that, the overall firing rate, the mean firing rate, is oscillating in a in a for for a while is oscillating in a really in a regular kind of way, at a, say a gamma type frequency, forty hertz or something, and um, and then you've got another population that maybe is also oscillating in, in the same kind of way, and the oscillations are in are in synchrony, and then then those two populations are in a position to exchange information. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's the kind of situation that, 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 that you're interested in. Now, the information is going to be exchanged during those little peaks of, of, of activation. Uh, and during a peak of activation, 
um, then that whole population is going to be most receptive to incoming spikes and is going to be the individual neurons are going to be more likely statistically mm -hmm. more likely to fire than in a trough of, of, of activation. And so that's why the communication can take place, you know, in that in that time. But mm -hmm. surely the, if you're thinking about maximizing the opportunity to fire the postsynaptic neuron, you don't want to come when it's firing you want to come just a bit before that yeah okay that's absolutely true but but uh, but uh, you've uh, in within 40 hertz you've got quite a few milliseconds uh, it's quite a it, it's a it's a little window of opportunity right. so you want you know the timing's got to work out that's that's for sure uh, you've got a window of opportunity you know um uh, so quite a lot can happen in that in that little window um uh, and uh, and and also you you've also got to worry about the delays. So so you know the, the, there are going to be delays between uh, uh, depending on the length of the connection and the type of connection and so on. There are going to be delays as well. So the, all of that's got to work out. Um, but but the the point is that it's getting the right relationship in the mm. phase to work out mm -hmm. is going to maximise the chance the opportunity for information to be exchanged and also uh, allows for competition. So so one so. You might have three populations. One population is trying to, or two populations are trying to influence a third, and um, and one is going to win out by uh, entraining the uh, the downstream population. Right. And once it's become entrained, then it can shut out the other guy, who will in, end up in the opposite phase relationship, and that's when the mm -hmm. uh, information sort of. But gets no, the, the the idea about gamma, the dominant idea about gamma, is is that it's very much a, a locally generated response, right? So you have it's found in, let's say, cortical circuits or in the hippocampus. It's actually the tight coupling of excitatory neurons with local fast GABA-A-mediated inhibitory neurons. Yeah. So as soon as you start to drive the excitatory cells, they will drive the local inhibition that will shut down the whole population. So now you get the ryth rhythmicity yeah. in the gamma range. Right. Yeah, so yeah. you could then first argue, okay, if I have a gamma in two areas, it means, okay, there's a drive onto these cells. This is the first thing. Right. Mm -hmm. And then you can say, well, now if these two areas talk to each other, okay, by necessity it will happen within this gamma rhythm because they cannot fire at any other rhythm, but they become driven. Okay? Yeah, yeah. So then how meaningful is it really to talk about, let's say, the, the enhanced communication between areas when gamma becomes more or less coherent? Yeah. Well, I think it, it's particularly meaningful in the context of this kind of competition. So where... where Indeed, you may have um, you know several populations, several neuronal populations are all, as it were, relevant to the ongoing situation. So if you've got uh, you've got uh, uh, well, actually, uh, actually, an, an example, a potential example is binocular rivalry. Maybe you know about binocular mm -hmm. rivalry. So where you've got two um, two gratings, one horizontal, one vertical, uh, presented to each eye. And uh, so the right eye can see the say the horizontal grating, the left eye the vertical grating, and uh, and then there's this binocular rivalry phenomenon whereby and you don't see the two uh, gratings overlaid on each other, you don't see a crisscross pattern, but rather you tend to see consciously you become aware of either one or the other, and the one will fade in and in and out while the other one fades mm -hmm. in and out. So that's uh, so that's known okay. as binocular rivalry. And um, uh, so that's an example of where there's clearly some competition going on between uh, between rival neuronal populations. And so one way possibly to account for that um, is, in, is in terms of uh, uh, this communication through co coherence mm -hmm. idea where one population temporarily entrains you know another uh, population further downstream and that dynamics goes on for a little while and mm -hmm. then but then it can 
sort of um, uh, burn itself out mm -hmm. for statistical reasons, basically, right. and then it, then because they're equally salient mm -hmm. stimuli, and then the other population becomes entrained instead, and so you have this flickering in and out. Right. And we had a paper in uh, Frontiers in computational neuroscience paper. I had a paper with a, one of my PhD students, Mark Wildy, where we uh, showed that kind of phenomenon mm -hmm. in the context of Pascal right. Fries's ideas. Yeah, so then, so now we know a, a little bit. Let's say that the physiological phenomena we would like to understand and explain, right? And what you what you told us is that actually you, you start to model these large-scale network phenomena with fairly abstract oscillator models. Mm, yeah. Right? So, so why did you make that step? Yes, um, I think I made that step be just because I just fell into it. <laughs> it wasn't really that I, uh, that I, I took a, 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 you know, a very carefully... Um, a very careful decision about mm -hmm. what I should look into next. Um, uh, but I mean, my you know my background is in computer computer modeling, so so my natural it, my natural tendency is to tinker with my computer models. So mm -hmm. I'm sitting there with MATLAB, fiddling around and uh, playing with my computer models, and that's mm -hmm. what I that's what I do. Um, I love and your then, job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, but but I'm always vulnerable to you, you know. There's so so. A lot of people are interested in that kind of thing in its own in its own mm -hmm. right. Physicists, in particular, you know, kind of quite interested in that sort of thing in its in, their, in its own right. But uh, but then, if you're trying to make a claim about its relevance to brain dynamics mm -hmm. or cognition or anything like that, then of course you're you're instantly vulnerable to the, the criticism that well, where's the mm -hmm. data? How does it relate to data? And so, of course, it's very important to try and relate it to real mm -hmm. data. But in my case, it's been a bit back to front. So I was tinkering around with the models for a lot, and only a little bit later did did the opportunity mm -hmm. to make it match up with real right. data come in. So what are the key parameters that you then fiddle with when you're sitting behind MATLAB on your desktop computer in your office? Oh, well, so um, so so in coming up with that particular model with the, the, the metastable chimera states, I tinkered a, well, with so many things, but particularly with the network um, construction. Mm -hmm. So... Um, uh, so yeah, the sparsity of the network, the ver mm. lots of parameters to do with the network construction. Um, the, yeah, the parameters of the oscillator models, the coupling. I mean, there's, there are there are hundreds of them. And of course, if I was a good mathematician, uh, I mean, I, you know, I, I I'm handicapped by being uh, a mediocre mathematician, mm. I, by by not having dealing with real data, not being a proper scientist. The only thing I can I'm any good at is programming. Mm -hmm. So uh, so you know, so you end up. Uh, tackling is is like um, uh, Dorothy just now was talking about. You know, if you're a capuchin, then and, um, and you see you've got a, a hammer stone, then right. you see everything as a nut. Well, it's a little bit like that with programming. You mm. know, that's I see everything as a programming problem. Right. So um, so I I tend to. Uh, but then for the model to close that, I think the key parameters you're controlling is let's say it's the face of your oscillators. I guess the transduction delay in their interactions, yeah, the strength of interactions. Yeah. These would be roughly the key parameters that would be dominating the properties yeah. of your of your network. Yeah. So the coupling, uh, uh so the two main parameters that we end up with fiddling around with are the uh the coupling and the delays. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um yeah. I I mean I'd just like to go into those models a bit more because one of the things that surprised me in your talk was, I mean, you, you described some of the history of the study of oscillators, which has been going on for hundreds of years. Uh, and, but then there's some fairly fundamental discoveries uh, that uh, you have made, and I think you mentioned a 2002 paper uh, uh, about properties of oscillators. 
um, that, that we didn't know about. And uh, can you say a bit more about those discoveries? Why didn't we know those things before? And, uh, you know, is there a lot, much, much more to know about these simple oscillator systems? I know there, there are yeah. large numbers of oscillators, but there seems to be um, potentially for areas like brain science, lots of scope for more uh, discoveries in this area. Yeah, I think uh, I think it's because the so it's physicists are, are, you know do all the the, the serious. Uh, uh, you know, legwork with all, all the heavy lifting with all of these oscillator models, and um, they they have a particular mindset which tends to focus in on things like, oh, let's look at you know, let's look at the limiting case where there's an infinite number of oscillators, for example, or uh, you know, let's look at the total you know where everything is completely connected, and um, and and also let's look at stability conditions. Mm-hmm. Let's look at all these bifurcation diagrams and the stability conditions, and in fact, the, there's kinds of um, dynamics which I'm interested in I, I I don't think they're actually very surprised that they exist I just don't think they particularly thought that they were interesting as uh, is, is what I, I suspect and it's only um, uh, but I mean they seem to be getting interested because that particular paper of mine has been quite well cited by physicists who, in looking at it I mean on a, on a you know relatively speaking mm-hmm. um, but I, I think it's partly because you know they probably knew that these sorts of things went on, but they they weren't interested in irregular networks that are you know that are not homogeneous and and. Uh, but could you then elaborate a bit what you discovered with this model, the so-called chimera states, and why they are interesting? And perhaps also how they relate to different uh, network configurations, because that's obviously a key parameter. Yeah, sure. So why they're interesting uh, is well. So well, maybe first define what define they are. It. So so uh, so these chimera states uh, is where you have a, a set of oscillators. Um, that uh, that basically partitions into uh, two two or more subsets, um, where, uh, where well two subsets really where one one of them is synchronized and the other is desynchronized. So that's a chimera state. Um, and when these were first discovered by the physicists, I think they found it quite surprising that these things could exist, especially in the in the because they had very homogeneous connectivity in those uh, ones that they were looking at. So they were a bit surprised by that. Um, this is certainly of interest from the perspective of brain dynamics because you you're not really interested in states either where there's nothing no synchrony because nothing's happening of interest at all there in the brain nor are you interested in the case where everything is synchronized because that's uh, basically seizure uh, and nothing interesting is happening either you're interested in interested in the case where some populations are synchronized and some are not and the ones that are synchronized are the ones that are governing behavior so, mm-hmm. uh, so if if uh, so, to, uh, we should try and relate this maybe a little bit to to the behavior of 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 animals, right? Because mm-hmm. we've been talking very abstract terms. No, but, so but far, I but think the the key thing about your chimera states was also you see there's a signature of let's say a, a, a network property, right? Where you would say, well, now I start to get minorities, if you want, in the whole population of oscillators that start to let's say be out of phase with yes. the majority. Yeah, that's right. right. This, this well, actually, I think it's the minority that are going to be synchronized, and the majority are going to be because because. Oh, your data looks a bit different, I must say. What in the data, the, the data, it's in for in that particular model, it's usually about half and half actually. Okay. So about half in that particular model, about half the oscillators end up synchronized mm-hmm. with each other, and about half end up desync right. desynchronized. Um, but so I think the, in real data, you probably expect a smaller set mm-hmm. to be synchronized right. and to be governing beha- the behavior right. of the animal and at that's, that time. That's also the link to your meta stability, right? Where so look, we want to be in between order and chaos. 
which would roughly be expressed in such a network as these chimera states. So you say, look, now I am at this critical point where interesting stuff can happen. Yeah, right? but it's not just the chimera states, it's the metastability, because you don't you don't want to be stuck in one chimera state either. Sure, absolutely. You want you might, mm -hmm. that, that particular collection of, particular mm -hmm. coalition of of, uh, of oscillate, synchronized oscillators, you don't want that to be the same one forever. Mm -hmm. It's doing its thing for a while, and then you expect it to break apart and then another coalition mm -hmm. of oscillators, so a different chimera state to right, arise. Exactly. So, but you, the, you've got this uh, minority group of coupled uh, oscillators, and then you say these ones synchronized which are synch synchronized. These ones that are desynchronized. Wh what do you think they're doing? Are they just well playing along in the background but not having any influence? Well, that, well, that's I think that's exactly what they're what they're doing. But so, any evidence so, for that? Uh, uh, well, I mean. Um, I mean things that are, that are things that are not synchronized or not even not even exhibiting regular oscillatory behavior. I mean that's 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 the mostly what's going on in the in the in the brain, right? If you right. Um, so, but I mean, I, I I wouldn't want to go as far and say that things that aren't uh, oscillatory aren't of importance. And oh, most no, of the sure, sensory okay. events aren't oscillatory. No, no, so. sure, okay, sure, sure, uh, sure. That's true. Um, Yes, yeah, so I think. Uh, I, I mean, I see it as. But I mean, this is a hypothesis that you know demands right. empirical validation. But I see it as, as a uh, a mechanism for communication and cooperation among populations that are anatomically distributed around the brain. Right. And it, so I, mean, I think we should talk a bit about behavior, right? Because well, all of this has been very abstract. Behavior, and, yeah. though, mm -hmm. the, uh, when you're saying, okay, the interesting stuff happens in the synchronized oscillators. Yeah. Uh, uh, is is that because you have some fundamental theory about brain hardware that, uh, you know, perhaps goes beyond this information transmission thing? I mean, so what's happening in the oscillation is information is being passed across the network, but these other decoupled ones are still processing information perhaps and passing it around. And I, yeah. I, I'm just not clear why that wouldn't be important or... or oh, I'm not necessary. saying it's not important. Okay. I mean, I, 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 I'm very much, um, uh, you know, against the idea of, of saying there's one mechanism to rule them all in the brain yeah. because everything, uh, I mean, I, I come to the brain as an engineer and I'm constantly trying to do that. And it's because that's my background and training. You want some kind of set of engineering principles that you want to squeeze the brain in yeah. into. And I'm constantly being brought up short and made to realize that no, in fact, what you thought was a principle is only, you know, is only a statistical tendency. And in right. fact, there's, there's much more of a mess there. So, uh, so I think this is one mechanism that may be quite important, uh, the, you know, in the brain, but I wouldn't want to say it's the only one on, uh, by any means. Right. I was just wondering if there's some kind of thing about clock speed or whatever mm -hmm. going on in the brain here that you think might be interesting. So. Uh, well, I think there, there is actually, as, as um, Paul was saying yeah. earlier on, there is a, actually an inherent tendency for these systems to enter oscillatory regimes when they're driven and if you when you build models uh, you see this pretty quickly you build a, a model of say with spike uh, spiking neurons and they're you know the excitatory connections are there's a lot of excitatory connections there and you drive it it's going to naturally start to oscillate and if you've got broadly biologically accurate parameters for the for your for your spiking neurons it does tend to oscillate in mm -hmm. around about the gamma frequency it just it just does that, so that so there is a, so so that probably falls a little bit out of the neurobiology, out of the biology, um, and then I suspect that, that, that the brain is going to find. I think whatever rich 
possibilities for dynamics you've got in the brain, the brain and evolution are going to find some way of exploiting them. Mm -hmm. so, so you've got these oscillating things going on. And the brain is going to find a way of exploiting these potential, the, the potential of, of this. And I think one way is is that it facilitates competition and cooperation mm -hmm. among uh, but, but, anatomically but now, distributed populations. But that raises on the next question, right? Whether these chimera states would also just drop out of the kind of local circuitry of, of cortical networks in the same way gamma, just draw, you get it for free, or whether something else is required for that. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. Um, uh, that's a very good question. I suspect that they probably do drop out, but I would, mm -hmm. uh, but I would. That would. That's a very good question. Mm -hmm. It would be good to construct models that prove that prove that. I mean, one reason why they might drop out is because uh, is because in. I mean, another thing I've noticed is that in competitive mechanisms, you build. You try and build some kind of competitive winner-takes-all mechanism. I mean, Tony might know about this as well. But it, you've got to build it in a very particular kind of way to make the winner persist, really persist mm -hmm. indefinitely. And it doesn't take much, especially if you've got small populations of neurons, for a bit of statistical variation to flip the winner um, to the other one. Uh, if you've got two, mm -hmm. you know, you've got two two rivals. And um, uh, so that's again, I think, is a natural property. So that does lead to pretty pretty naturally to these kind of uh, mm -hmm. chimera states right. and and a flipping between mm -hmm. them but now the next thing you did is essentially you took like the state of the art if you want about on, on human brain connectivity um like the human connectome and its different statistical properties and we mm. had an interesting discussion about uh how to interpret that this morning but that we don't have to get into that but but so if you now combine these dynamics and the notions of criticality with uh, our understanding of the human brain, right? So you built these kinds of models. What happened? Mm. Well, so uh, so this I, the credit really has to go to the people from here in Barcelona who did this first of all, Gustavo Deco's group and Joanna Cabral, who built a model based on the Hagman data set, where they used the Hagman connectivity data set and basically put one of these oscillators, Kuramoto oscillators of the type that I was playing with, one on each of the nodes in Hagman's network. So it, it's very, very similar to the thing that I built, but the thing that I built uh, used a completely synthetic network. It was a synthetic network that had some brain-like uh, features, such as modularity, but it was just a little constructed by an algorithm. Now they did it with a with a real DTI based uh, data set, and um, and then the interesting thing was that they showed that they were able to to uh, produce a strong correlation with resting state um, uh, fMRI data, um, and that um, you know I, I have to say that it did rather surprise me, and it pleased me enormously that this it only happens when it's in this metastable chimera mm -hmm. state uh, exhibiting this metastable chimera state dynamics so the kind of dynamics that i, I that i had found in my mm -hmm. model and i i you know nobody really had published anything showing that kuramoto models could produce this although as i say i think the physicists mm. probably knew it they just didn't think mm. it was interesting enough right. but but the the amazing thing was just to find that somebody could show that it was mm -hmm. could be used to model real data and only if it was in that regime but what, uh, i couldn't this is. I, I would like to push you on that a little bit more because you could argue, look, to get to something like the dynamics of a resting state network, the key thing is that you get your connectivity defined. So then in this case, you take this notion of functional connectivity, which is a statistical structure of interactions. 
you exploit that to seed the the topology of your network. And but, you said, but in this case, it's structural connectivity. So they, they okay. were using a structural Fine. connectivity. So you have your structural connectivity, um, and you start to drive that now. Couldn't you argue that any kind of, of activity model, even a rate-based model, a, a linear threshold unit, would be able to give you a resting state kind of pattern because the secret sits in the connectivity and not in the dynamics of the nodes. Yeah, that may well be the case. And indeed, um, uh, other people, uh, you know, including, again, Gustavo Deco's group, have used different kinds of dynamical, dynamical models. Um, but few of them are simpler than this Kuramoto model. I mean, it's about as simple as you mm -hmm. can get and produce you know, interesting uh, kinds of results, uh, mm -hmm. I think. So that's what strikes me. So the, the data set that you're looking at there is fMRI, which, of course, doesn't really have the temporal resolution to look at things like oscillations. So, I mean, can you impact, unpack for us a little bit how that data really validates the model? Because obviously you're looking indirectly for evidence for the kind of states that your model is creating. Yeah. So, so, so we're looking at, uh, so in this kind of, this kind of work, um, you're looking at, at how the, you know, the model over a long run, over quite a long run. So the model itself is oscillating at uh, a gamma, a gamma frequency, but it's producing a phenomena at a much slower, mm. um, you know, it's producing dynamical phenomena at a much slower rate as well, where, where large, you know, groups will synchronize for a while and then th that synchrony will then go away. So that is happening at a much slower rate. Which so there's, is, there's a slower dynamics, which you can then look for. So there's for slower dynamics, the yeah. So, 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 so right. the, the actual model is constructed at, uh, at, a, at the level of this faster dynamics, but the results that you produce uh, are at the level of the, of the slower dynamics. So that's where you're making the matches. Mm -hmm. and, and what are the phenomena at this slower rate that you're, you're, you're matching on? So, well, I, you're, you'd have to ask my co-authors exactly right. okay. what's going on. No, there. But there's an issue here, right? <laughs> because, as you know, there's quite a discussion again now about what are we really measuring with fMRI. Yeah, right? sure. And uh, there's some correlation with blood flow. But actually, the, the link to neural activity is still being debated. Mm. right? So mm. now, at best, with your, with your oscillator model, you capture, let's say, the hemodynamics that is sort of indirectly reflecting something neural that we don't really understand yet. Mm. On the other hand, the origin of your model was neurophysiology, a, a very different level of description, spati both spatially and temporally, because mm. now we're talking about single cells doing things, right? Yeah. So isn't it quite a stretch to actually first say, ah, and I capture Pascal Friese's synchronization, gamma range communication data and explain it. Yeah. And on top of that, I also give you now here the whole human fMRI. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, the, the origin of the model is a little bit higher level than that. Mm -hmm. So it's, you're really talking about populations of, of neurons. So if you're, so what you what you might maintain that one oscillator represents would be the activity of a quite a large population of, of, of neurons, exhibiting a gamma type. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Bit, uh, you know, uh, dynamics. Right. But but uh, you know, I have to say, the, I have to say, I completely agree with you. Mm -hmm. I, I I it came as a total surprise to me that you could use this kind of model in this sort of way, and that it would actually um, mm -hmm. uh, match uh, the data. You mm -hmm. know, um, so. But it, your you closest know. link with the data is the more at this fMRI level than at the neurophysiological level where we look at direct cell well, that's the electroactivity. Well, indeed, right? but that's not that's only because those are the only experiments that people have, where mm -hmm. they've tried to, 
to make the match right. as far as I'm aware. So okay. I'm, I'd be very interested mm. indeed to do it at a, at a, you know, at a lower level. Mm -hmm. um, uh, yeah. Right. But now the other thing is that if you go for the whole, let's say populations where we talk about, let's say cubic millimeters of, 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 of cell volume that we're measuring with fMRI. Um, so if we describe that with an oscillator model, then what we're capturing is the activity of millions of neurons of very mm. heterogeneous types. Mm. Um, and that actually also the dynamics of these neurons might be much more heterogeneous than your model captures. Like Absolutely, if you look at gamma yeah. and say, okay, gamma is locally driven, right? You might actually have all sorts of subpopulations of cells and yeah. all sorts of complex dynamical relations, yep. metastable or not, that you're completely blind to. Yeah, I, absolutely. Right? So uh, how are we going to cross that bridge now? Well, I think by, I, I mean, as I said at the, quite early in my talk today, that I did actually start off with spiking neuron models and showed how the, the, the spiking neuron models produced a kind of dynamics that I was interested in, mm -hmm. or, you know, a complex dynamics that I was interested in. And people were saying to me, oh, why do you need the all the complexity of these spiking neurons why not do it with a simpler model so i so i, I thought okay i'll give that a go and so i moved i went up a layer uh, in, in uh, of abstraction and moved to these oscillator mm -hmm. models and kind of got drawn into that because it's a whole world in itself right uh, but but i um I, I do very much think it's a good idea to go back down again and to build you know larger scale mm -hmm. spiking models than the ones i was doing before and i have a phd student david baumick who's done a lot of work and there's a plos paper last year that describes exactly that so you've got a much richer variety of phenomena in mm -hmm. fact with lots of different frequencies interact interrelating in different ways right exactly is there some possibility that you might see metastability at different spatial scales in the brain? Oh, absolutely. In fact, I would be uh, astonished if you didn't. Mm -hmm. Right. So now, so here, here we are. You, have, you seem to have a model that's actually pretty powerful in capturing data and describing and interpreting some of this data on the brain. And now you're also applying that to sort of pretty extreme states in which we can, we can push your brain, like under psilocybin. Uh, Psilocybin, yeah. Psilocybin, yeah. sorry. So, yeah. um, so how has the model helped you to understand the dynamics that you would induce with, with magic mushrooms? Yeah. Um, so, so there's, can I give you a little bit of background there? So, so, um, so uh, one of my colleagues at Imperial College, uh, Robin Carhart-Harris, has done some pioneering work with uh, psilocybin, which is the active ingredient of magic mushrooms, where subjects um, are administered with uh, uh, a psilocybin preparation, and then uh, then you do functional MRI on the on the subjects, and uh, you can um, interpret the results. Uh, in fact, you can interpret the results uh, uh, as a uh, as an increase in metastability, um, uh, and which in turn you can in, in interpret in terms of a uh, you know a larger variety of states being produced you know quite uh, so sort of flipping between a larger variety of of states so you can kind of explain some of these results some of the dynamics that you see under psilocybin as as moving to a more extreme version of the metastable regime that was identified in this model and um uh, and and Robin Carhart Harris is quite amenable to this kind of interpretation, and we had a joint paper in Frontiers describing that kind of interpretation. And um, 
Um, so, but I think the uh, I, I think a lot of and so we're trying to apply the model to that as well. But I think that it's it's very much work in progress, mm -hmm. and uh, we have to. In fact, I think the, the application of this whole methodology is very much a work in progress, and mm -hmm. we we have to. Uh, uh, you know, um, refine it a good deal before it becomes right. uh, really accepted. Okay. You said before you wanted to bring this back to behavior, and one of the ways that I expect you will do that is through the work that you've done on, on cognitive architecture, which yeah. is thinking much more about function of uh, brain circuits, particularly cortical circuits. So can you say a bit more about, uh, first of all, the ideas of cognitive architecture that you're interested in and mm. how that might mesh with this work on oscillators. Yeah. Well, I, I, one of the really fundamental problems that I've been interested in for a, for a while is, is how it is that a novel coalition of processes can, can form, can sort of coalesce out of, out of nowhere to deal with uh, a situation that's never been encountered, encountered before. And that's, that's a, it's clearly, I, I think that's clearly at the root of human level cognition. It's uh, it, well, actually, maybe even some animals, some non-human animals, can do this as well. Um, and uh, so I, I see th um, the rich dynamics that you uh, that I've been talking about here um, as a way of maybe addressing that kind of problem. And it also relates to the kind of cognitive architecture that I've been interested in, where you. Uh, so I've been interested in global workspace architectures. You can relate global workspace architectures to a certain kind of connectivity in the brain where you have a connective core of, of hub uh, regions which, which perhaps can facilitate um, coalition formation, in particular the formation of novel coalitions to deal with a, a new kind of situation. So it's this formation of novel coalitions where which which I think is quite difficult to account for, and that's the kind of thing that I'm that, that ultimately I'd really mm. like to be able to model. So the the connective core that you're talking about there is is the bit that's actually active when we're not doing anything, which has you know external. We, we seem to be thinking rather than attending. Yeah, and is that right? That, and so w what kinds of activities that humans do do you think we're going to understand better through this? Well, it's probably the kinds of activities where um, you're confronted with a with a with a novel situation, and you have to pause for a second, uh, and sit back and think and stare at it, and then suddenly, aha! You know, you you've you you've a solution has come from as if from from nowhere, and um, so I think that probably is engaging uh, 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 is engaging a. a um, a sort of mode of a dynamical mode that enables uh, uh, processes to talk to each other and form a novel coalition that otherwise they wouldn't have been able to do. And I suspect that they can do this via mm. via this sort of the cent these centralized uh, regions in the but, in the human brain. But then we still don't have behavior. So what's well, we, the, we have what's a, a kind of a, a unobservable behavior so you've got reflection well so, so but once, that, once that's the, the point <laughs> we want to get to what's the overt behavior we got to then explain with that right yeah well i mean uh, so so i i say you, you know i was caricaturing a little a little bit by saying you take you sit back and you, and you uh -huh. say aha mm -hmm. but i think if we, i mean you've probably seen this famous uh, video of betty the crow uh, bending the hook for mm -hmm. the first time to sure. retrieve the bucket and I, you know, of course, you can ask questions about that experiment because it's hard to reproduce that kind of experiment. Mm -hmm. But if we take that uh, that bit of behavior at face value, I think something 
interesting is going on there or when children solve the same problem because mm-hmm. you can re- re- reproduce that that they'll they'll play around they'll play around and maybe there's a you know maybe you'll see this physically but maybe I'm not maybe you won't but there'll be a little moment when uh when their brain is going to when maybe they actually pause but their brain is going to go into a um, a mode where new a new combination of processes can come together and then it's going to lock onto that mm-hmm. you know somehow the brain as it were knows that that's the right solution mm-hmm. that's the sort of aha moment right. it locks onto that possibility and of course it's going mm-hmm. to do it straight away mm-hmm. and uh, i mean that that phenomenon in the brain i think is key absolutely key to understanding human level mm-hmm cognition i i think it's you know like as insight. important as insight mm-hmm. it's as important right. as language i think and um uh if not more important mm-hmm. than language and that's what i'd really like to be able to to understand right. capture in a model okay so then um so Murray, being being an engineer and and trying to understand the brain using these kinds of of models and actually covering quite a range of of phenomena um what what would be um, Murray's law that we have to adhere to to study the brain? <laughs> I don't think I'm entitled to coin you are a law. Now. Um, <laughs> you, you're now. Uh, I think I think it would be um, play. One word law: play. Mm-hmm. Play with your models and make your models play. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> I cool. think playfulness in in as as a scientist. Uh, and engineer mm-hmm. um, and playfulness in the models. They're in a sense, they're the same thing, right? We're mm-hmm. we're being creative, and mm-hmm. crea- the, the root of creativity and the creative things we want to create is mm-hmm. playfulness. <coughs> now, the other thing is that Tony and I are trying to control the future, so um, that's why we have Tony check the predictions people make, and since. He can just take a train from Sheffield to London so we can save money that way. The question is, four years from now, Tony's, Tony's going to come visit your lab there at Imperial. And he's going to say, look, you know, four years ago on this podcast interview, you made this prediction to them checking whether it was validated. What's the one prediction, concrete yeah. prediction you could make today? I, th- I, I think it's that I'll have no more funding to address this issue than I do now. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Well, we hope that isn't true. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Murray Shannon, thank you very much for this right, conversation. <laughs> I was queued up for that question, but hearing you answer the previous The CSN podcast was produced by the Convergent Science Network of Biometics and Biohybrid Systems, a project funded by the European Seventh Research Framework Programme. For more interviews, recorded lectures, or upcoming conferences in the field of biometrics and biohybrid systems, go to csnnetwork.eu. And thank you for listening.